A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. Ninth of December, Sunday, by Quentin S. Crisp. Ivory Tower, a pejorative term, yet it's quiet up here, and you can see, centuries away, other towers, lit. I was born during a long peace, but soon enough, Normal service is to be resumed. Unfinished business of apocalypse. From a single piece of ivory, these towers have been carved. Their source, the tusk of an elephant on whose back the world rested. Look down to the plain below these towers and see volcanic flowers bloom and blacken. What a view, history itself ablaze. So the last judgment I seem to see is a fount eternal leaping in each moment with colours of unique revelation. Quentin, where did these poems come from? Um, it, this this whole collection that they belong to, uh, December, is part of a, a larger project um, in which I am um, um, using poems as a kind of diary, the, these tanker poems, and um, a diary of one month in a year, and each year it's the next month. Um, so these December poems were written in 2018, and then there's January poems in 2020 and so on. And we're up to April now, which was 2022. And so in in this actual collection, the Meta Collection, um, Autumn and Spring Annals, we have six collections from November to April. So th- this is from the December collection. Um, so in in uh, to a large extent the the um, poems come from the concept of this um, project so basically every year for the last six years you have been spending one month writing quite intensively a set of tanker is that right um, that's 
uh, almost correct um, for the last eight years because the first two in the um, project were published independently as September and October. But, uh, yeah, but apart from that, that's correct, yes. And Tanka, I know we will talk about that a bit more later on, but that's basically a Japanese verse form, isn't it? It is, and it's the form that preceded the haiku. In other words, the haiku is an offshoot from the tanka. Okay, so you set yourself this task of really focusing quite intensely, it it Mm. sounds, one month a year, writing. And in the collection, you've got several days. I mean, these were all written on the same day, and it's not even all the ones you wrote on the 9th of December. So you wrote... That's right. You were writing at high pressure. I mean, what was that process like? Well, I, I actually in, enjoyed it, uh, have been enjoying it quite a lot. And, and it is interesting, but um, I had what might be called a dry run um, many years back when, um, in about 2013, when I decided to try an experiment and Uh, Every day I sent at least one tanker to a friend of mine by email or text over the phone, and then I would delete what I'd sent from my sent um, folder. Um, So she had all the tanker uh, to do with as she wished. Um, in fact, um, some years later, she pre- presented me with the bound, hand-stitched book of them. <laughs> um, when it came to the month um, uh, project, the month poems, um, at first I wasn't sure whether I'd just do September because I've always liked the month of September. But even as I was doing that, I had the idea for doing every month, um, um, one month a year. Um, And I decided to go for it. Um, And I just try to, um, whatever thoughts or observations or so on, manage to catch my attention as I sit in the morning um, um, and make it all the way through to the tanker form, I I include it. Um, There's only been one or two where I, that I haven't included out of hundreds. Um, um, So it's, um, so it's partly um, the the morning, the that that kind of uh, morning feeling where you're sifting through your morning thoughts, um, crystallizing stuff out of that. But not not all of them were written in the morning. But in in the mornings, I, I want at least one or two, and then that gets me going for the rest of the day, and it's turning over and over in my head, you know. So the form is kind of ticking away in the background yeah. as you yeah. go throughout your your day. Yeah. And did you yeah. have any um, in, rules of what you would be writing about? You said it was whatever came into your mind. Was it really mm. as open as that? 
Yeah. Um, yeah, the only rules I had were formal rules um, in terms of subject matter. I didn't have rules. I, I, I had vague, vague sense of um, it might be nice if I can include this or that theme or so on and i and i've wanted to include seasonal things if if possible um but no real rules in terms of the subject matter and it does i mean it or rather they the 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 sequence of collections they do range quite widely don't they i mean the ones we've Mm. heard today are quite lofty and apocalyptic and we'll talk about that in a minute but you also have some very down-to-earth day-to-day pop culture yes. um, daily daily bread there's even some bread in in it would you like to say anything about that i suppose maybe there are two obvious influences at work here and and there are no doubt others um uh one of which is my um in relatively recent years i've become more interested in uh, philosophy and have made formal study of that and um uh, some of the ideas that i've been studying and thinking about um are coming out in the poems and um it's handy for me to have the the ideas in a compact form like this that i think i um it's all it's all there compact and i can unpack this more later <laughs> um uh, it's a bit like a memo in a way um and so that's one influence which i can possibly talk more about if necessary, but another influence is um, very much the, uh, the Japanese influence, and and one thing that I've taken from Japanese literature, um, which I've studied and and I'm very um, well in, interested in is not the right word. Um, it's uh, I've become very immersed in uh, over the years. Um, one thing I've t- I've taken away from Japanese literature is the focus on everyday things, um, and it's um, it's not um, it's it's funny it's an, it's almost romantic, not quite. Is is um, but there's there's a line somewhere in Okakura Tenshin's um, Book of Tea um, where he talks about the the Eastern or Oriental, he might have said, um, romance of the everyday. And, and this is what um, tea represents for him. So if, if you think of, you know, a cup of Japanese tea and that is every day, but there's there's also something very aesthetic about it, especially, well, it's especially aestheticized in the tea ceremony, for instance. So, so from that, I think you can extract the idea of a kind of romance of the everyday. 
what I suppose what I'm saying is there there is a little bit of the the English kitchen sink kind of thing in there, and certainly a, a quite a good dose of of larkin. But um, um, I think there's still the Japanese thing of um, it's it's not it's not quite. Um, uh it's not quite just down to earth um it's a, a little bit of um ethereality i think uh, i mean this this is my opinion and readers might think differently but that that's how i uh, i approach it and just to underline you know when you you say you've been immersed in japanese literature you've actually mm-hmm. studied the japanese language at a high level you know you're pretty well fluent in the language so you you have read tanka and haiku and so on in in the original japanese yes yes and you know you mentioned philip larkin obviously the great 20th century poet of the mundane and it's yeah. interesting because there isn't really much of a sense occasionally there's a bit of a sense mm. of the ethereal i think in larkin but he's he's very much of the the grimness or the dourness of the everyday mm. but what you're saying yeah. is in and i know you respond to that in in Larkin's yeah. verse um but also you you're saying in japan that there's there's maybe a little more uplift or translucency or ethereality yes yes in the way yeah, they treat that, these everyday details that's right yeah and that's right um yeah i mean uh, something comes to mind now. A couple of things come to mind. The, the, there's uh, f- my favourite um, author, Nagai Kafu, um, in one of his stories called "Quiet Rain." Um, it it opens with him just talking about his house, how it's been raining a lot recently, repairs he's done, and like he he couldn't sleep the other night and he went through to one of the rooms and if I remember correctly he found his father's old spectacles there on on top of a chest of drawers or something like this and um, it's just this sort of image of these these spectacles just the placement of that that image um, Although it's, it seems like nothing in a way. It's somehow um, very evocative, and it's. it's um, I don't think it's quite the same as. Um, I mean, Larkin's actually a bit more lyrical than people give him credit for. But I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's quite the same as the the. The more dour, um, uh, deflationary aspect of Larkin. Okay, and then maybe moving on to these five mm. tanker that you've read today. Mm. Um, yeah. In a way, th- this is the very opposite, isn't it? You start with that quite provocative phrase, mm. "ivory tower," and then you come out with this ama- amazing kind of fantasia on that on those two words. Well, yes. Yeah. So um, I I was actually doing my MA at the time that this um, collection was written, with November 
December and January, I was doing uh, an MA. Um, and so I was, uh, sometimes, <laughs> uh, it was a part-time MA, so I was um, in the evenings and uh, so on in, in the ivory tower. Um, and... Um, uh, well, as as the the poem says, it is a pejorative term, um, but um, I I um, I just wanted to uh, re-examine that a, a bit, and I, I liked being in the library of the uh, um, university. Um, huge library, and um, seeing all these books on the shelves, and um, of, of course, you you can never in a lifetime read so many books. Um, but uh, there were particular books that you'd be looking for. You pick them off the shelf, and there's a, a voice when you open the pages from. It could be centuries ago, and you're there continuing a conversation with them as as you're using them for citations and so on and so forth. Um, and um, so the um, people, when they use the phrase ivory tower, what they're saying is that this is... Um, it's not reality. You're you're um, you're sheltered from the real world. Uh, um, but um, these the conversation that's going on is that it, it, in these towers, um, a bit like beacons lit on hills. You know. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. It really reminded me of this of the Spanish Armada story about mm. the you know the beacons being lit across England from. One hill yeah. to another, yeah. and that extraordinary evocative image you've got—you can see centuries away other mm. towers, and there's a lovely comma lit. <laughs> I can only <laughs> just see the the lighting of the yeah. um, the beacon with that yeah. little syllable. Well, yes, I mean that that's it. So the these towers are actually, you know, in. There, of course, there is a, a sense of haven, and I don't think that's such a bad thing, actually. But there, um, it is a conversation taking a place, taking place across history, and it's um, it is going on in the the middle of all all sorts of things. I mean, I, I don't I don't want to pin it down too much, but. Um, I suppose I just want, wanted to bring out a bit more of, of the idea that um, there's not a complete separation between these towers and you know history. It, it, the 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 towers are seen as uh, universalizing, and the u- the universal is seen as unhistorical. Um, but there, the tower is, of course, rooted in the earth, and and that's the history, you know. 
And the you know the next one you read I, begins. I was born during a long peace, and this one doesn't mm. directly reference the tower, but this is more mm. kind of well, this is what's mm. going on at the bottom of the tower. And you know, we've. Yeah. I mean, this was written in 2018. Was yes. there any specific thing in the news that prompted you to say that? Because it feels a little, you know, given what we're living through in 2022, it feels we're really aware of what a luxury it was to have that long piece, uh, at least in Western Europe. It's hard, actually, to retrieve the specific um, reference for that, but I, I, I do tend to think <laughs> about these things. Um um, so there were probably a, a whole um, number of things that I've had in mind, um, um, but I can't think of a specific news item for that one. Okay. And then you've got this delightful thing where you take the the metaphor of ivory mm. and say that they were all carved from a single piece of ivory. Mm. And and the source is the tusk of an elephant on whose back the world rested. Is that Hindu cosmology, with the elephants holding up the world? I think it it's supposed to be, isn't it? Um, I, I think the I think the story actually comes from. I read recently um, that is it John Locke, one of these. Um, uh, early modern philosophers recounts this story as um, a way of um, uh, illustrating some problem in philosophy. Um, and I think he ascribed it to um, the Hindu um, cosmology. But I, I, I don't know how accurate that is. Um, but yes, the the old thing about the um, uh, world being on the backs of elephants and the elephants being on the back of a turtle, and then the question is, you know, what's what is the turtle resting on? Um, yeah, yeah. And then the final two that you read, yeah. you've got this extraordinary image of the volcanic flowers. Mm look down to the plain below these towers and see volcanic flowers bloom and blacken. Mm. And then later on in the, in the last one, you say the last judgment I seem mm. to see is a fount eternal leaping mm. in each moment with colors of unique revelations. So mm. it's, I don't know, it makes me think of those old Hieronymus Bosch paintings of hell where, you know, from a distance, mm. it kind of looks a bit picturesque of all these mm flames and colors and oranges but of course the implications are quite quite horrifying yes yes that's that's right um i was um actually just yesterday i was listening to some uh, uh an audio recording of um mishima yukio making some address in english and he was talking about his life during the wartime, and um, he was excused from military service um, for health reasons. But um, he had air raid duties and so on. Um, and when there were air raids, well, he des he described watching the the air raids, the bombs, and so on. Um, he said it was like the the most brilliant firework display, you know. Uh, yes. 
But yes, the um, that's right. I, I, um, I mean, history is is a, is a when we we look at history, and often enough, it's described as nothing but um, a sequence of wars and crimes and so on. I mean, I, I think that's a simplification, but you can understand why people describe it in that way. And um, uh, but that's also um, you know that's that's also funnily enough our entertainment or you know a lot of it is um precisely turning that into an action film or, or a historical novel or something like that and we have this this kind of uh, double attitude towards it maybe it's more than double but it, it's at least double um uh where we um it's it's both unacceptable and it's a narrative that gives meaning to our life. Those two things together. Okay, so moving back to considering the the tanker form um, mm. and its role in this whole project, you said that you felt quite at home with the tanker. Could you mm. say what you mean by that? Yes, well, it's it's something I discovered in a way um, because I my my BA was in Japanese studies and part of that was studying classical Japanese, um, uh, which means um, l- the language and literature, well, specifically the literature. Um, before the Japanese language was modernized um, um, around, it was modernized around the Meiji era. Uh, Yes, uh, that began in 1868, if I remember correctly. Um, So, um, so, uh, in studying classical Japanese, a large part of that was studying tanka, and specifically poems from the um, anthology, the Ogura Hyakunin issue, which has a hundred poems by a hundred dif- different poets in it, which was compilation made in the 13th century, I believe, but many of the poems were much older than that. Um, for instance, uh, some from the Manyoshu, which was an eighth, eighth, I think eighth century um, anthology, uh, um, and so on. So we we studied these tanka, and it was um, linguistic and cultural analysis of the the poems, um, and had to, especially, we had to learn the the grammar and conjugation and so on, which is very, well, quite different to modern Japanese. And so there was a lot of, um, it it was almost like these things go into sort of a psychic muscle memory, you know, when, when when you're looking at the nuts and bolts like that and, and, and with a kind of repetition to it, you know, um, 
And at, at when I was first uh, studying the, these poems, um, it, it, I almost got the feeling like they petered out and I didn't quite get them. But there was there were many interesting images in them and um um later i uh, read the the whole thing and and um tried as as much as i could to un- understand completely the the whole whole thing um i mean there's a lot of archaic verbiage and so on so it's not always easy um um and uh, a lot of the poems really stuck with me, and they, despite the, the fact that it's culturally a, a very different world to to the one I grew up in, um, um, and that's a kind of interesting thing uh, uh, about poetry um, is is that. Um, um, I think it's not it's not all about uni- abstract universals, is it? You it, you, you enter a um, partly you enter a um, a localized environment of the poem, um, and that comes to life um, uh, if you're in sympathy with it and if the poem is good. Um, um so anyway so i i think i i'd kind of um absorbed these poems and and there was a, a a delayed effect that i didn't realize how 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 much i'd absorbed them until much later um and having had such a a kind of deep relationship with this form what do you think it is that makes the tanka special well, it's it is compact, obviously, um, and I think that compactness gives it um, two um, seemingly opposite things of uh, lightness and density. Um, it's light because it's it's easy to read in one go, and um, it, it's almost like like a quip or something like this, you know. Um, uh, but uh, it's dense because um, actually, well, traditionally, you you get a lot of ideas overlapping within this density. And uh, often there's there's literal overlap, um, like there's a, a thing called the kakekotoba, which is used very much in um, tanka in um, uh, the, the original tanka, um, which is when um, two words overlap. It's like um, a pun, basically. Um, the only example that comes to mind to illustrate it in English uh, language um, poetry, or well, it's um, space oddity, uh, David Bowie's space oddity, 
right at the end where, where he sings, can you hear I am? That here is a kakekotoba. Right, because it could be here. Yeah. H-E-A-R or yeah. H-E-R-E. Yeah. So, so you have this device used uh, a, a lot in the original tanker, and this is part of their density, actually. Although they're light, they're very dense. So uh, a great example of this is um, a, a very famous example, which is in the Ogura Hyakunin issue, is um, Onokomachi. Um, I mean, they're, they're just like top-rate puns, really. Um, but <laughs> they're like your top, top draw puns, you know. Um, um, it won't come across um, uh, uh, that well explained, but the, um, the the whole the whole poem is about uh, growing old, and she says, "Oh, the the flower has faded." Um, a literal reading would be something like, "The flower has faded while I have watched the long rain," or this kind of thing. Um, but. Um, so there's a phrase yo o furu which means passing through the world furu is the verb used for fall when rain falls um then it has the phrase nagame which sounds like nagai ame which is long rain but it is also gaze you see so um passing through the world um, long rain, um, um, falling rain, and gaze. It's, it's all um, tied together there. It's all blended in. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so although I haven't used that kind of density, I, I, I think that I've – because um, I, I wouldn't mind – trying uh, the khaki kotoba at some point but what what comes um more naturally to me are things like internal rhymes and there, there's there's all sorts of wordplay and um use of metaphor and so on going on so i i think i get a similar density with that in that way um yeah, I mean there are other forms of of, of, of um, compactness and density in the original tanker as well. There are all sorts of uh, allusions to previous poems, cultural references, and so on. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe this would be a nice point to listen to the five tanker once again. Thank you, Quentin. That's been enlightening on several fronts, linguistically as well as poetically and culturally thank you thanks for having me on Ninth of December, Sunday, by Quentin S. Crisp.
ivory tower, a pejorative term, yet it's quiet up here and you can see centuries away other towers lit. I was born during a long peace, but soon enough normal service is to be resumed. Unfinished business of apocalypse. From a single piece of ivory, these towers have been carved. Their source, the tusk of an elephant on whose back the world rested. Look down to the plain below these towers and see volcanic flowers bloom and blacken. What a view, history itself ablaze. So the last judgment I seem to see is a fount eternal leaping in each moment with colours of unique revelation. Ninth of December, Sunday, by Quentin S. Crisp, is from his collection Autumn and Spring Annals, published by Snuggly Books. Quentin S. Crisp, not to be confused with the author of The Naked Civil Servant, was born in North Devon. He took a BA in Japanese studies at Durham University, graduating in 2000. More recently, he completed an MA in philosophy at Birkbeck College. He has written fiction, essays, diaries, poetry and song lyrics. His novella, Shrike, was shortlisted for the Shirley Jackson Award. He was co-founder and submissions editor of Chormu Press. Recent publications include Binturong Time, a novella published by Zagava Books, and a novel, Graves, and the poetry collection Autumn and Spring Annals, both published by Snuggly Books. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of Every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links, as well as a full episode archive, at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air 
is produced by the 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.